Thank you for that worship. Good morning, Grace Chapel. Uh, before we uh, get into today's message, we're going to dismiss all children from preschool age right through to uh, fifth grade. They're going to head down and be well taken care of. And uh, as a church family, I just wanted you, to, we're going we're gonna to pray in just a second here. Um, I wanted to alert you that one of our uh, family members had a little episode over the weekend, um, Jim Zentmeyer, um, and he and his wife Joyce were vacationing, and he started experiencing heart palpitations and dizziness and took him into the emergency, and they sh- shipped him right over to the hospital, and he's seeing a cardiologist over the weekend, and it looks like he's going to get a pacemaker. So that's supposed to happen tomorrow or maybe the day after. We'd be in prayer for the Zentmeyer family, especially for Jim. Uh, he said, uh, you know, I had a little bit of fear, as you can well expect uh, when it's your heart. And, uh, but he uh, knows that his God has got him, and he's got this. So would you pray with me for them in particular? And Father, we, we all bow before you, we who call you our Father by, through our faith in your Son and our Savior Jesus. And we're We're so thankful for your care, for your protection, for the eternal life that we all enjoy now and are going to know in its fullest one coming day. And we pray for Jim. We pray for Joyce and and Thomas and Grace and and the rest of their family that, Lord, uh, they would know your comfort, experience uh, your care. We thank you for the care he is receiving and pray for wisdom as decisions are made. And Lord, uh, in it all and through it all, we give all honor and glory and all healing that comes to you. And we acknowledge it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, um, through the course of being a a pastor, uh, I've officiated and I have also attended, as I know many of you have attended also, quite a few funerals over the last 40 years. And And I've been able to watch firsthand the reactions, uh, various reactions to loss and and grief. And and I've listened to a lot of different statements about living and dying. And at one of the funerals I officiated, a relative got up and said some disparaging things about the departed. Have you ever been in a a funeral like that? Uh, it It was during the eulogy portion of the service. And it nearly caused a riot. I mean, I mean, I smile now. I wasn't smiling at the time. I was like, okay, what do I say? How, how do I bring this thing back? Uh, and a few of the people, understandably, were pretty disturbed. Now, now, what the relative said may have been completely true. But don't you expect people in general to just mention nice things about us um, at our home going, right? Yeah, yeah, you expect that. So, so please, just a little aside here, would you please remember that at my funeral, all right? <laughs> and just in case you're wondering, what should I say? I've got things made out for you. Oh, I, I can email you the, the notes, okay. So, so what do you think should be said at a funeral? Better yet, What's the most important question to ask regarding the dearly departed at their funeral? And I've come to believe that the most important question to answer at a funeral is this. Was this person saved? 
Like everything else is irrelevant. Nice, but irrelevant. And the most important answer for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior is yes. <laughs> they put their faith and their trust in Jesus' payment for their sin debt. Finished, as Jesus said when he was on the cross. It's finished. And then we can know for sure peace, right? Then we can receive hope. But I've often heard this statement or variations of it at some of the funerals I've attended. They are in a better place. Because many people, if not most people in our world, think that dead people go to a better place, right? I've heard these comforting conclusions, though, in referring to an individual who I know personally, personally adamantly declared through their lifetime that Jesus was not the only way to salvation, that their faith was not in God's declared plan of salvation, but that they had put their hope, their faith, their trust in some other method, in some other religious system to gain entrance into the next life, the good life. And I've watched movies, and I know you have too, all kinds of movies have been out there for decades that suggest that everybody goes to a better place, except Hitler. I mean, yeah, that's where we draw the line, all right? So everybody's got, Hitler be, has become our standard for wickedness. How convenient. Because <laughs> not many measure up to that standard, so we're all good, yeah. I think for many in our society, dead people go to a better place becomes this common, comforting, comfortable way for we humans to express the inexpressible. We, 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 we say that as a means of, of comfort and peace of mind for the ones who are left behind. Uh, we just want to ease their grief and their pain, and we don't know what else to say, and they're broken, understandably, and we want to give them some, something. Plus, <laughs> I think that most people want to think that that applies to them too, that we all go to a better place. I don't want to have to think about it very deeply. I just believe, yeah, there's got to be something better than this. But here's the thing about this myth. When it's applied to a non-Christian, it offers a false hope a false hope for life, for peace that has no foundation on which to stand. And it suggests that the living who are left at that funeral are headed to heaven one day too, or to a better place. And, and, and Paul makes it so clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says, the outlook of the flesh, guess what he says, the outlook. The outlook for the flesh is death, but the outlook for the spirit is life and peace. There's no question in my mind now that the idea of Jesus being the only way to eternal life, to heaven, has become politically incorrect, right? You've experienced that? You can see that it's as plain as the nose on your face. But what's more horrifying for me than that reality is that that opinion is found even among some so-called Christians. The, I hope you don't believe that today. So as we've done every week, 
in this summer series, let's see what God says. Um, and here are some passages. We're going to just go through them rather briefly today that speak to this issue. I mean, because God's word is so plain on this. Let the Bible always have the last word because, hey, God's going to ultimately have the last word anyway, isn't he? Let, let the Bible speak for itself. And the first four passages we're going to look at all come from the Son of God's mouth. Remember how he's referred to in Scripture, the Son of God, Jesus, as what? The Word of God in the flesh. Listen to him as he speaks. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And we've looked at this many times over the last year because we did a whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus said, remember? Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the narrow gate, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Two gates, not one. Not one bright light. Not one tunnel of peaceful feelings. One of those gates of the two leads where? To death. One of those other gates leads to life. And in fact, Jesus says, many, many will enter the death gate. Not all dead people go to a better place. Jesus says that few actually do go to a better place. Later on in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is having this conversation, and he makes this point in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, there is a hell. There is a God who is to be feared. There is a coming destruction. Christian, don't be afraid of mankind and what mankind says or even thinks about your faith in God. Keep the faith. Strengthen your focus on God's truth, His Word. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, and it's so popular. I mean, I even hear this from people who, who aren't Christians, <clears throat> reciting this in some form or fashion. Mark 8, 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a rhetorical question. For what can a man give in return for his soul? You can't buy, you can't barter, you can't work your way into a better place after you die. I said it's a rhetorical question. There is nothing you and I can give in return for our soul. And then John 14, towards the end of his earthly life, before his sacrifice on the cross, actually the night before, at the Last Supper, he tells them, I'm going to be leaving don't be afraid. Don't worry. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. They're not quite, you know, cluing into things yet. 
How can we know the way? And then the, the classic answer where you and I place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way, plain and simple. Or as he explained elsewhere, he's the door. He's the gate entrance to that narrow way. He's the way to the better place. And few will walk his way by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. So here's a passage, move over to Paul now. So that's Jesus. He's pretty clear, right? It's black and white. And then you come to Paul, and Paul has so many comments on works and how you get to a better place and living a good life. And here's, here's a passage regarding doing your best and living a good life which fills up so many common funeral eulogies. It's Galatians 2.21. And after talking about righteousness and man's working towards it, which is a big uh, topic in the letter to the Galatians, he says, for if righteousness were through the law, this is speaking about God's law, if doing everything that God demands as he lays out in the Old Testament, if that were at all possible, he says, then Christ died for no purpose. If there was another way, then Jesus wouldn't need to die. And if there was another way, God may still have sent Jesus to come here to tell us more about that way or about those ways, but he didn't. He said, I'm the only way. The recording of the rich young ruler's encounter with Jesus, uh, recorded by the former tax-collecting disciple Matthew, it's really helpful. I think it's really helpful. We look at it quite often because it nails the issue that we all deal with. <clears throat> it's in Matthew 19. I'm going to start reading in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, to Jesus, and he said, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? It's the question every Christian wishes their friends would ask, because it opens the door to you sharing the gospel. Um, so this young man, he gets that all dead people don't go to a better place. He, he, at least he gets that. But there's something good that you have to do to go there, um, to obtain this eternal life. And Jesus, maybe he's listened to Jesus. Maybe he's heard all these teachings all the way along, and he's saying, this is different than all the, that I've heard from the other rabbis. i got to ask him, wh you know, what's he getting to here? And his question, it's, it's an amazingly precise revelation of the human condition it's on everyone's mind at some point in their life experience. It might be on your mind today. What's next? What's after this? Is there a way to get to a better place? And what do I need to do in order to go there? It, it becomes more urgent as we grow old. Those of you who are older agree with that? Yeah, yeah, you're like, yeah, it does. 
So I find it very interesting that a young man is considering that coming already. Thank you. I got it. You get that? All right. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So the implication right away from Jesus, who is the source of all truth, the implication is, young man, you are not good. And nor can you ever be good enough to gain the eternal life you desire because only God is that good. No one else is. Only God is that good. And then Jesus puts the young man's request in perspective, and he says, if you would enter life, this eternal life you're asking about, keep the commandments. How are you all doing with that? Jesus said, okay, you want to know? Be that righteous. Keep all the commandments in the Old Testament. Live by God's standards for righteousness. Why would Jesus offer the impossible? We, we all know the Ten Commandments. I mean, you might not be able to recite them right now. Most of the kids down there can, but some of you need to get on that. But we know about the Ten Commandments, right? And some of you could recite them. We all know that there is not one of us in this room today who can keep them all, right? Other than Jesus, the God-man, every human fails. And we're all witness to that very fact every day of our life. Did you break one of them already today? No one wants to admit that. That's okay. Israel, of which this young man is, is a part of that nation, Israel was to keep all the commandments which God laid out as the standard for his children, the standard to approach God's holiness in prayer and supplication and, and in worship. And of course, they failed, just like you and I would. And that's why, by God's grace, they were given the opportunity to offer sacrifices through consecrated priests who also had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they could receive the sacrifices from the people in order to come into the presence of God. And even that proved to be really dicey. So those sacrifices, they were only temporary. Before Jesus Christ died on the cross, and we trusted in his death for us, you and I were always unclean also because we always had this sin nature that we were slaves to. It's like we couldn't say no. And Christ freed us by his death on the cross from slavery to that sin. Jesus Christ provided the victory for me to say no to the temptation of sin. I can experience that victory through the Holy Spirit who resides within me. To, to say no to the sin nature longings. So this young man is thinking it through. He's hearing what Jesus is saying, and he, and he said to him, it goes on, oh, which ones? Now, to some of us, that might sound like being really arrogant, right? But he's, I think he's just really thinking it through. This is what I've been looking for. 
what's the magic bullet? Which one, which one do I need to keep? And Jesus says, well, here's six of them, <laughs> six of the ten. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lists the last six of the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, every one of them is others-centered. It's more easy to evaluate whether you're obeying those or not. Just ask your neighbor. Jesus leaves out the first four, which are all God-centered. Only God can really comment on the true heart that is before him. And the young man said, it's crazy, isn't it? All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And I think there are people that you and I encounter who would say that, even believe that about themselves. It's kind of the conclusion people come to. Well, I haven't killed anybody, <laughs> right? I'm not that bad. I'm not Joseph Stalin. See, I've added to the list. You've got Hitler, Stalin. Don't worry, the list is going to get longer. It's going to include every one of us. But for this Jewish ruler, he's been taught from the day he was born that it's about keeping the law. But through his young life, even though it's a young life, he's seeing that he's missing something. That's why he's come to Jesus. I've done everything that my parents and the rabbis said I'm supposed to do, but I'm still empty. There's, I'm, I'm not confident that I'm going to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, <clears throat> okay, can you imagine if Jesus said this to you? If you would be perfect, if you would be perfect, he says, here's what you need to do, young man. Go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions, like most people in America. So Jesus cuts right to the heart of his problem. His weakness, his temptation to sin. Jesus knows what button to push. And Jesus makes it personal for each one of us in this room, doesn't he? You can't help but read his word and be exposed. It's like the disciples in the boat. And Jesus calms the storm that they were afraid of. And then the, the, the historian records, and then they were really afraid. <laughs> because when you're alone in a boat with Jesus, you're exposed. He sees everything. And God knows where sin has a grip on you. His truth exposes our true heart's desires. His truth exposes what is even behind our motives, even our motives for doing good things, even our motives for obeying the law, even our motives for being good to other people like our neighbor, really working hard at our righteousness as if we ever really could. In the next section that follows this up, where Jesus makes this encounter with the young ruler a teaching point for the disciples who have been watching this all go down, and who, by the way, as they've been listening, they have done 
as Jesus commanded the young man. They've left everything. They've left everyone, and they followed Jesus. I mean, they've taken this right to the limit, right? It's what we looked at briefly last week, if you, if you remember. So let's just recap quickly. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. We looked at that in detail last week. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, this statement from their rabbi, they were greatly astonished. It's like blown away. This is like, I've never even thought of this before. Then who can be saved? If the rich, because, and they're rich because they're blessed by God, if they can't get in, what about us? But Jesus looked at them and he said, <laughs> I think he's saying, you know, you guys are getting it. <laughs> who can be saved? You are observing exactly the way I want you to. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is the only way. And Jesus is saying, I'm glad you're starting to get it. How do you think that most Christians you know would respond if someone came up to them with the same request as that young man had of Jesus? How would they answer an affluent young American? With what biblical truth would they, would you, clear up the person's question, deal with that young man, woman's issues, point to the solution for their struggles from God's Word, not from clever thinking. I know that if you've been a part of our teaching and fellowship here at Grace Chapel for a while, you've often heard that salvation comes to us through only one. One name, one sacrifice, one hope, and His name is Jesus. But our world, for the most part, rejects that truth. Dead people go to a better place. And it's become a cultural expression, an expectation, or at least a longed-for long hope in our society. Or maybe it's just for Americans, right? The other countries, I mean, especially like North Korea, and they're not, they're not going to go to heaven. But Americans, we're going. Our calling from God is to share the truth that that line of reasoning, that sentiment is a myth. But we must present this truth like Jesus presented it to this young man without being purposefully antagonistic, even coming across arrogant, uncaring, unloving, a know-it-all. And I know with some people that's impossible. <laughs> but with God, it is possible. It's expected. It's commanded. So, so what impact do you think the truth that we looked at today, that only born-again people 
enter into eternal life would have on the people you know who don't know Jesus, people you work with, people you go to school with, your neighbor, what impact would that information that you share with them have? That anyone not born again goes to an eternal death. Let's consider the following verses before we're going to share communion together about that death. And consider these verses and the way you and I share the truth of the gospel today, or should. First one, you might find a little unusual. It's Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. And the writer says, open your mouth for the mute. Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of those who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. That's kind of a lifestyle. And then you and I, we don't get a free pass on the physical needs of other people, especially when it comes to being used by God to share the biblical truth of the gospel with them. God is the one who opens their spiritual eyes, not you and I. We just serve Him faithfully while we do it, while we share the truth. And this is not some kind of social gospel plea which is becoming so popular in a lot of places and in a lot of churches. I'm talking about the fruits of the Holy Spirit of God evidencing themselves in the life of a spirit-controlled Christian. Live what we say. It's true. No amount of helping people is going to win me or you eternal life. But it's also true that helping and serving and loving others is a mark of my eternal life. Proof. Assurance. In Micah, in the Old Testament, Micah the prophet, God spoke through him in chapter 6, verse 8, and it backs this up. And here's what Micah said. He, that's God, Yahweh, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And you know, in the New Testament, there's also this concluding passage we're going to look at today that exudes confidence for you and I as Christians in a world that does not believe or care for what it is we're, we're saying. And the Apostle Paul, he reassures our sensitive consciences because they are so sensitive. And he explains how, how believers like you and I should live before God to avoid trembling anxiety and instead exude this calm confidence. 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 through 20. But if anyone has the world's goods, okay, let's all be honest today with a show of hands. Do you have, do you possess the world's goods? Every hand has to go up because every one of us does. So if anyone, so this is us. Okay, so he's talking to us. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him and says, no, not going to help, not going to do it. And we have our reason. How does the love of God abide in him? It doesn't. Are you convicted? I'm challenged. (laughs) 
Little children. That's an apropos description of us, isn't it? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And by that, by this, we'll know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Just like God knew the heart of the rich, young ruler, He knows your heart, and He knows my heart today, better than we know it ourselves. And if my heart, your heart, condemns you or me, that is not the most significant thing. We get caught up in that. It's God's condemnation or God's approval that matters most, and He knows everything. He knows my motives. He knows whatever deeds of love I did last week. He knows that I should not dare take any credit whatsoever for any one of those, maybe not even tell anybody. He knows that I am His. And it's that that is most important. Not my misgivings, not what the world says comes after death and Pete, you're wrong. It's not just Jesus. How can it possibly be that? So is your conscience clear before God today? And that brings us to sharing communion together. I'm going to read some passages as we celebrate and remember our Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sin debt. In John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus told the, the Jews around him, he said, I am the living bread. What a statement. And the bread Jesus was referring to was his flesh flesh that would be offered up on the death of the cross in the distant future from when he's talking. He's not talking about literal bread, but that he is the living bread. And that symbol has been confused in even some other Christian religions. It's in the sense that those who believe in Jesus Christ will have their spiritual hunger satisfied. They will know and have an assurance, a reassurance that they possess eternal life. This spiritually satisfying bread is available because Jesus Christ sacrificed his own physical body in his death on the cross. And look at the response of the Jews in verse 52. Then the Jews who were hostile to Jesus began to argue with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What a silly thing to say. And then Jesus says back to them, I tell you the solemn truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who consumes me is controlled by me. 
I am his and he is mine, will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Me, Jesus says. It's not like the bread your ancestors ate when they were in the wilderness and God had the manna come down and they went around and collected it. No. He said, it's not like that because guess what happened to every one of them? They died. The one who eats this bread lives forever. And then when he was gathered with his disciples long after this statement in Matthew 26, in verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. Let's take it together in unity. Jesus Christ's body is the once and for all fulfillment of all the ceremonies, even the ceremony of the Last Supper, which he was celebrating with his disciples when he made that statement. Jesus is the sacrificial atonement for the sins of all people. And then he took the cup, and it was most likely the third cup of four in the Passover. It's been called the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption, corresponds to God's third promise to Israel in Exodus 6.6, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And when Jesus took that cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take it together. That cup that we all just celebrated together and remembered foreshadowed at that moment the the shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross, the absorbing of God's wrath. Jesus' blood opened the door for the redemption of all people. And through that, what he called there, that new covenant relationship that we can have with God that he promised to the nation of Israel. And Jesus finishes off that portion that we call communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, with this. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's the messianic banquet. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 8. The last book of the Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ, talks about it in chapter 19, verse 9. I hope you can say with me, I know where I'm going. I know in that eternal place, we all who share this same hope in Jesus Christ will share a meal together with Jesus Christ 
Are you hungry? I'm waiting for it. It's going to be good, and it can be yours if it's not today. By placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He is the only way. If that's where you need to go, if that's the decision you need to make, don't leave here without speaking to me or someone else who you know and trust to pray with you and to lead you into that eternal hope that so many of us in this room have, have adopted and been adopted into, G, into God's family. Rise with me. We're going to sing. We're going to close as we always should by giving praise to our awesome Heavenly Father. God, we bow before you. We've worshiped you in song. We've worshiped you through your word. And Lord, we've been filled. We know that that is to receive strength to now go and to live for you, to share the good news of salvation, to see you work not only in our life but the lives of others. So now we lift our voices once again to you who alone are worthy. In Jesus Christ's most precious name, amen.